I had had homeless experiences, which I don't really talk about in a lot of detail. It can happen to you. It wasn't supposed to happen to me. I need a dollar, 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 that's what I need. Hey, hey. I've been homeless here, I've been homeless overseas. I have been through it. Hey, hey. Said I need a dollar, 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 that's what I need. And if I share with you my story, would you share your dollar with me? I wasn't supposed to go through anything I've been through. I was supposed to be a nice little black bourgeois child who grew up, got married, had some kids, and went on with life. And my life has been anything but that. This is Sounds from the Street, where we get to meet the men and women who define street sense. DC's nonprofit media center dedicated to creating economic opportunities for people experiencing homelessness. I'm your host, Adam Campy, and today's guest is raconteur and Renaissance woman, Angie Whitehurst. In this show, part one of two, we're going to learn about Angie's path to homelessness. It's not a secret, there is no predictable path, and Angie's life story proves that in more ways than one. Thanks to two serious diseases, cerebral malaria and fibromyalgia, not to mention an unwavering commitment to her family. Her life direction and her focus dramatically shifted just as her career was taking off. It's nearly as unexpected as it gets. Bottom line is, as she just said, it can happen to you. It wasn't supposed to happen to her. Let's meet Angie. My sister told me I was from outer space. My name is Angeline Whitehurst. It's Angeline Lucille Whitehurst. I live in Washington, D.C. I was born in Freedman's Hospital on September 8, 1952. What was my doctor's name? I can remember seeing him when I popped out, Dr. Pinckney or Pinckney, something like that. No, I don't remember seeing him. What else would you like to know? I'm a Washingtonian. You know, if there's any questions that you don't want to answer, you don't have to. This is super informal. This is not live. Okay, I'll tell you, Nanya. You know what Nanya is? None of your business. None of your business. You sound like my my friend's mom from North Carolina. She says Nanya. Nanya. And nose trouble. If somebody's getting all up in your business, they're being nosy. Nose trouble. She just says nose trouble. That's right. Hush that bus. Hush it up. Right now. That's her other big (laughs) phrase. Hush Hush that that bus. bus. That's what you say to little kids. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. (laughs) Nanya. Nanya, that's right. Um, Okay, so before Street Sense, what was your life like? Where were you? That's, that's a huge question, but I can capsulize it for you. My life for several decades had been a modge podge of ups and downs uh, because of my own health problems, uh, because I had malaria, and I went through a number of years suffering with reoccurrences that were severe um, and debilitating, and then not being able to work, and I would work temporary, and take on temp jobs and trying to get into something that was more stable. Worked on contingency, worked with companies that should have done well, where people turned out to be crooks, stole money, ran away, left all of us stuck in more limbo. And then if you try to get a job with someone after that, that's, that's really like tomaine poison. Uh, then family problems and issues because I had been committed to my sister who has a mental illness and to my mother who is a divorcee 
and my other siblings and their life struggles and adventures, which have been most interesting. So all of that, my life was, it wasn't focused on me. It was more focused on keeping whatever little tiny root of a family I had together at my own expense. I do not recommend that people do that, especially after what I've been through. Sometimes it works out, and sometimes it's like where I am now. It's called a never-ending story. And, and how did you contract malaria? Oh, I was in West Africa, and I was asked to make a detour before I came home to go observe something, which I did and I got bit by a nasty mosquito on the back of my neck. It didn't bother me then. Maybe less than a week after that, I became seriously ill and went to a hospital overseas, and they said, oh, you have malaria. The bad news is, is that you have a rare form of malaria. What they didn't tell me and what I didn't ask was, what does that mean? I found out after I got back to the States that it was rare, there was no cure, that I would suffer with it or die with it. The other people who had the same type, it was cerebral malaria, who had the malaria that I was able to find, most of them had died, and at that time, I think there were maybe five people alive. You know how time goes on, you say, okay, I'm gonna leave this alone, I left that alone. So I just suffered through the reoccurrences. So you were working in West Africa? Yes. For the government? I was working for a private organization as a subcontractor, unquote, as an international consulting economist. And <laughs> is that code for something? I don't know. We'll have to look back in the records and let the historians figure it out. It was during the Cold War period. I know it's an interesting time for everybody. And so economics was your focus? My, my studies was political science, international affairs, and economics. Some of the things I did, I worked in the exhibit business. I did some volunteer work, contract work with the Commerce Department, um, and worked on some international trade types of things, contract rating and review, some minority business development projects, and import-export business development. So you got back, had to deal with the, the onset malaria. of the malaria. I had a friend who I kept getting sick, and I had done some work for his company some years before, and someone told him by word of mouth, and he came to Washington and got me, put me on a plane, took me to Africa, got me to some clinics and doctors who had more experience in cerebral malaria, and they gave me some medication. That was experimental, but I was so sick and was just ready to just die, because it's very painful, it's excruciating. I took it, I didn't die again. <laughs> I had an enlarged spleen for a while, which gives me a big stomach, you know, and that abated and, and it was more controlled. I still had reoccurrences, but they weren't excruciating to the point where you became delirious or comatose. 
Is that connected to fibromyalgia? It might well be. You know, that's a good question. When were you diagnosed with fibromyalgia? Um, back in probably 2000, I want to say 2005. Because, see, before that, I knew that I had post-polio syndrome. And when I would go to a doctor, they would always say that's what it was. I didn't have insurance, and someone, I got a pro bono visit with a doctor at Johns Hopkins who told me that. But then years before that, I had a professor who was a biologist, who was a doctor, who told me that I had that. So I, that I knew hmm. you know, and accepted. The fibromyalgia, I refused to accept what the doctor said. I just didn't want it. And I already had post-polio syndrome, which, you know, for after I had it, I knew I had a weakness in my legs and back, which is why my parents enrolled me in ballet. And so I've always danced because that helped with that. But I did not want the fibromyalgia because that's much more painful than tired, fatigued muscles. It's a bitch, and that's why I call it fibro B. I'm more influenced probably by my mother's side of the family, which is from West Virginia. And people, mountain people, no matter what happens, they are there for you. No matter what you do, we might tell you off. You know, we might watch you like a hawk to make sure you don't do something again, but we're still there for you. And so I probably have too much of that, I think. Maybe not, I don't know. But I wouldn't be happy if I just said to hell with everybody and I'm going on about my business. And so currently, like my mom has stage four ovarian cancer in remission remarkably, unbelievably. Um, you don't leave people like that. And I love her dearly, even though we have big differences, but there's some things we have in common. And then, you know, like when I had malaria, once I had a reoccurrence, I had a fever of like 108, and, a, and, and my whole body just, all the fluid just sweat out. I messed up my mother's beautiful several thousand dollar sofa. But my sister, the one who has the mental illness, was the one who sat and stayed with me. She didn't leave my side. And then even after the fever was over and I had to go here and go there, and I could hardly walk or move, she went with me and helped me. Society doesn't deal well with people with mental disabilities and when their prime caretakers get old and can't do or die, they really are left out into the wind and quite a few of them do become homeless. And so at what point in this, in your journey, did you stumble into Street Sense? Street Sense, I think when they first started and I was working downtown and doing some consulting work with someone, I used to buy the paper and I would tell other people about the paper. And let's see, how did I get back to Street Sense again? I think when I was taking yoga downtown and that was, um, my mom was sick, had gotten sick at that time, and I would see the paper and I would get the paper. Then I decided that I wanted, wanted to go and do that and I went there. And then I think I stayed away, then I came back, then I signed up for the vendor's class. I had to take it three times because I'd had a stroke before I started doing the yoga. And that's why I was taking the yoga was to strengthen my focus, strengthen my muscles, give me something positive to do besides sitting 
in the house and looking at TV all day and deciding what I was going to eat. And so when you first joined or or in the process of doing the training class to become a vendor, you didn't identify as homeless, or did you? I had had homeless experiences, which I don't really talk about in a lot of detail, several times in my life. I knew that I didn't want to repeat that. That's a pattern of behavior that I have to look at with myself. When you keep having trauma and drama throughout your life, you do get a serious case of anxiety and depression. And after I had the stroke, I was suicidal. So I saw street sense because I had met the man, he, I call him the cat in the hat, and had a conversation with him maybe. 11th a, and F. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. Some years before st- when he was out there. He's still there. He didn't remember me, but I remembered him. So that sort of like propelled me to say there's something here that is unusual and open. It might be a little strange, but it's worth a try. Anything that was going to help me get on a path that was solid or more stable than the one I had been on. And it has been that. That was part one of a two-part conversation with Angie Whitehurst. Next time, we're going to focus on her love of art and her super active role in the Street Sense Media Center's growing slate of workshops, from photography to theater to the interactive art bus, all of which will be featured and celebrated at the Street Sense Gala on October 1st at the beautiful Josephine Butler Park Center just off of Meridian Hill Park. In fact, you can meet Angie there along with many other Street Sense artists. You can also listen to the cool sounds of cellist Benjamin Gates, drink great beer from D.C. Brow, and great gin from Green Hat, and bid on some fantastic items at the silent auction. Tickets are on sale now at streetsense.org. To hear more sounds from the street, check out streetsense.org backslash audio, or find us on SoundCloud. Please keep the conversation going on Facebook and Twitter at DC. The Sounds from the Street theme song, I Need a Dollar, How to Make It in America, performed by Aloe Black from the album Good Things, used courtesy of Stone's Throw Records. The song was composed by Aloe Black with Leon Michaels, Nick Movshan, and Jeff Dynamite, used by permission of Songs of Cobalt Music Publishing, EMI Blackwood Music, Inc., slash Sony ATV. The following songs use courtesy of Creative Commons and found on WFMU's Free Music Archive. Excerpt of Charmed Life, Clouds, Farm, Birds, Front Porch, and Lifting Off Slowly by Adam Seltzer from the album Production Music. And excerpt of I Can't Imagine Where I'd Be Without It by Chris Zabriskie from the album Thoughtless. And if you happen to see Angie out on the street and she's making a fuss, just tell her to hush that fuss right now.